Well, we're in uh, Luke 12. We progress on, and we got to have to remember that Jesus is on His way to the cross. He's been doing that all His whole life, but now we're in the last few weeks, uh, last couple of months or so, somewhere in that area. And He has to get across the message that is very pointed. There are many, many, many that need to hear the matters of the heart. So, there he is. He's been preaching. Seen it in chapter 11 in the introduction. already kind of gave you what is here in the first few verses. He was speaking on a most important subject. It was a gigantic crowd. People actually have been stumbling over each other. That's how huge it is to get to a vantage point where they could hear him and see him somehow. So they were just trampling all over people. All ears are wanting to be attentive. They're wanting to hear this. Every word that he speaks is precious. All of a sudden, right in the middle of this sermon, this man's voice interrupts the speaker of the ages. The teacher, the best ever, the only true teacher, ultimately. And it's like, what in the world is going on? If you're out in a crowd, you're going, who's this guy? You know? Total disregard for the ones speaking and even the crowd because they're all trying to get in there and, and hear what he's saying. Well, he had a question didn't have a thing to do, as I said before, with what Jesus was talking about. I think it's rather annoying how He interrupts here and, and bothers a crowd and, as they're intently listening. But in all fairness, sometimes it would be like a, maybe a presidential press conference where you have the press there and somebody is making a statement. And they start asking questions. You know, they have the microphone and they're recording all this and writing stuff down. They're clamoring for attention of the president, you might say. They want to get their question answered. So people will ask certain questions. Sometimes it was not always that unusual for people to uh, interrupt speakers, teachers, Interrupt Jesus. If you look back at chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is teaching, as He most always does. Verse 27, after He's talked about demon possession, that He says uh, the last state of that man becomes worse than the first whenever more demons come in than there ever was before. Right at that time, it says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. And then he goes and corrects what she said. You know, she's, she's amazed by all the things that he said. And he said, Blessed is your mother. So there are interruptions that go in uh, at that time when Jesus was preaching. The uh, man somehow gets the Lord's attention. 
His question is recognized, but it's not really answered in the way that the man wants. Now, it says here in uh, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, just someone, teacher, teacher. We'll just stop at that for a moment. Jesus is known as the teacher, isn't he? He is a rabbi. How many times have you heard of Jesus being called a rabbi? A teacher. People know him as rabbi. Now, do you think that he had gone to seminary and been trained to teach? Probably not. He did go to synagogue. We don't hear of any advanced teaching that he had, but honestly... Do you think he really needed it from them? He is God himself. But he sure is teaching some things that are really amazing. So here it is. This would not have been too ordinary, uh, 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 unordinary to ask a rabbi a particular question. Rabbi... Uh, a rabbi like Jesus, let's say, would uh, get questions and it uh, would be something that would be pertaining maybe to the law. And rabbis would actually answer that question. You know, Q&A time. And uh, so the, the rabbi would be giving some wisdom, some advice. And so Jesus is taken as a rabbi. And certainly he is the rabbi. What the man wants, though, is a judge. He wants Jesus to be an arbitrator here. See, the man has a brother. His brother is a little bit older probably here. And he is the one that is over the estate. And really, if you go back to Levitical law, you would see that the firstborn has a double blessing. And so that is pretty well the custom of the time. And this man comes up to Jesus and he wants Jesus to pronounce a favor upon him. That he would get what he wants to get out of this. So that is the occasion. And uh, Jesus is going to take this occasion of this question and it's really specifically pertaining to this one man and his position. Jesus is going to make it much broader. He's not going to make it just for that individual. But he's going to show the interest and the application here of taking it much farther than what this man was wanting. I believe the man asserted himself for his own interest. Jesus is not playing into that. He has total disregard for what Jesus is doing and what the crowd is doing there. Jesus is teaching high doctrines, deep doctrines. And this man is so preoccupied with his material inheritance, I don't think he heard a word that Jesus said. You know, at least it could have been on the subject, you know, about confessing Jesus. Do you mean if I don't confess Jesus that you can send me to hell? You know, something like that. But no, he's talking about money, possessions, inheritance in this world. 
not that those are not important, but there are major issues that go much further and deeper than that. So the law of inheritance, if you take like in Deuteronomy, here's a Levitical law here, Deuteronomy 21, 17, but he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. So that's dealing with inheritance, and that was the law of it. This man... His brother is probably in the crowd. He wants Jesus to even this thing out here. I want to get as much as my brother. It's kind of where he's at. So he doesn't ask Jesus really to hear the the case, the merits of the case of why he's saying it. He's just saying, "Hey, make this really good, you know, uh, for me." He's asking Jesus to you know prejudge the case in his favor. That's the idea. Because this would be coming from a very wise person, wouldn't it? Jesus is definitely just full of wisdom. People are recognizing that at least. So there's our first point in verse 13. We move to 14 and 15, and this is the response. This is Jesus coming back with His answer. But He said to him, Man... Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, and it's this time, them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That is the principle. Jesus is taking this lesson, make it very broad, a general uh, applicable message to the people now. Uh, Jesus first, though, did have a few words for this man in direct response to his position. Man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. And man is not uh, really an enduring term here. It's really um, so, so... It's like Jesus is like saying... I don't even know you. You know who are you? I don't, I don't even know what you're about. Uh, you're a stranger. I don't. I don't. You know. It's it's in that sense. It doesn't call him by a first name. Of course, how many first names is he going to you know bring forth? I guess he could have. It calls him man. A term of distance. You know who appointed me judge. I have more important things to do here than judge some kind of social, legal, or economic decisions to make. I'm not here for that. I'm here to bring the gospel of the kingdom. It's at hand. Now we know he's saying, who appointed me a judge over you? So that that is the earthly sense. The heavenly sense is true in that Jesus is the judge, isn't He? He is the judge. He will judge souls. He's the judge of all. He will judge all in the future judgment. I think of John 5.22. Very next book. John 5.22. For not even the Father judges anyone... But He has given all judgment to the 
Son. Jesus is the judge. He will make those judgments in the end. Look in James 5, verse 9. James 5, 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. You say, we're not to make judgments, be critical of others, those kind of things. That's not what we're here about. Because he says, there will be a judge. You are not judges here over people. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Christ, in His coming, will make judgment. However, on this occasion, Jesus has more important things. What did He say before? My kingdom is not of this world. I will render no opinion on these kind of matters. I have more important things. But he did not waste time in getting to the man's spiritual condition. And that's where you want all of the things in the world that's going on. You really want it to go to the heart of the matter. It's a spiritual matter. We battle not against flesh and blood. Right? But we battle against spiritual things. And then we have spiritual truth. The Word of God, which is the sword that penetrates through all evil and wickedness that this world has to offer. You see, when you see things that are unrighteous and you hate it, and you should, and call it for what it is. I know we are very, very concerned on what's going on in our nation. And and you look at the morality, the unrighteousness, everything that's going on with it. And you know, we have our thoughts and our ideas upon it. If it's coming from God's truth and His righteousness, we are to be angry and not sin. We are to be angry at those things that are not honoring to God, right? But yet, realize what the underlying matter really is. When people take views that are opposite of truth and what you stand for, realize that they need Christ. Realize where that sin is coming from because you once were there too. So that's one thing we have to remember. Call it for its unrighteousness, but yet stand firm on the truth. Pray for these people that they would be saved. And that's the only way that things on this planet is going to change. That Christ comes in and changes hearts, changes souls. That's what Jesus is going to do with this man here. Now I'm not saying He's changing His heart. And I'm just saying that's what He looked for. He could have gone right into that social family matter right there. And said, we need to even things out right here. Yeah. But no, there's something more important, isn't there? So every conversation that you hear, if it be with unbelievers and they have total different ideas, say, okay, you know, to yourself, I understand where they're coming from. Here's where I want to get from point A to point B. 
I want to get them to see what's really in their hearts. And do you see Jesus take every question like this, it's a stupid question, but yet He turns it into something that amounts to eternity. And it's going to get that man to thinking what's more important. Whether he had heard any truth or not, he's going to hear this. So, it's the spiritual condition. And last week, we had a beware. It was found in chapter 12, same chapter that we're in, at verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, He began saying to His disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. So what does He say? Disciples, okay, beware of hypocrisy. All the people are around. There's hypocrisy going around all over the place, the religious elite especially. And He says, beware of that. They're going to be telling you that what I'm saying is absolutely wrong and what they do is right. And that could be very convincing. I'm wondering, okay, this Jesus, He's interesting, but I'm not so sure that He's right. He says, beware of their hypocrisy. They're going to be telling you some things. Beware. So now, as he's been preaching on that, we get a second beware. And this is amazing about what Jesus does. Isn't it incredible how he teaches? Right in the middle of an interruption, he goes to the heart of the matter. That's that man's thinking about what this inheritance is, and he's really going to get to the, the issue. Beware. And be on your guard against every form of greed. So, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of greed. You know, both of those things are real tricky. Matter of fact, we all battle with this. We battle with hypocrisy, making ourselves out to look like something else than we really are. We also battle with covetousness. If you're wondering what greed is, the word can be translated covetousness. Some of your versions have that. Beware of coveting. Most people really can't see that you covet. Maybe, maybe so, but it's 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 subtle. It's real subtle. It's really, really tricky sometimes. Beware. The word there, beware. Harate uh, means to observe, to look, watch out. He says, be on your guard. That's a military, uh, military term. Philoso. It means to provide protection against something. That's the idea there. A, a vigilant <laughs> protection against every form of greed. It's almost like be on guard, have guards on stand, right standing right there before you in a sense. So when greed comes up, you know what to do with it. The word greed is pleonexis. And it is an outrageous 
inordinate desire for riches, wanting more, grasping, uh, scheming even is included in this idea. It is just as bad as hypocrisy or false religion. This is a thirst. It's a thirst for more. You have everything you need, but you thirst for more. That'll make me happy. And then more. You can't get enough. You want more. Ask any rich man. Think of Howard Hughes or Rothschilds. You can go on and on, some of those famous people, and ask them what they would more and what they would need to be really happy. My next million. A little more is what they say. And a little to them is just a million. A million isn't much to them. To us, it might take a lifetime to get that million, right? But if you were to start a new country, and you're told you can have this country and you get ten laws for this country, you can name them. You can make those ones that you have. What would you have in there. Well, you'd probably start with, shouldn't nobody can murder, right? It's a law against murder. I think every nation probably has some kind of law on that, you would think. Uh, another one be uh, against thieves. Stealing, robbing, right? When you have a law against that, well, I think most countries have that. Those are good laws. Then you go on, you think, oh, well, how about bearing false witness? Well, if it's in a court case, definitely, right? So I have a law against that. Of course, we know God's top ten, don't we? Have you ever heard of any country having a law about being coveting? Have you ever heard of that one? Well... Actually, in the Bible, in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, it is the one that got to Paul. And as he relates in Romans, talks about the law that really convicted him. Coveting. Greed. He said, Paul, that's the law that got him. And he saw he couldn't follow that law. Because everybody does it. Um, We don't think of coveting of being that bad, do we? I mean, how does it compare with murder, robbery, right? How does it compare with that? Well, it actually is listed in what we've all probably heard of the seven deadly sins compiled by man. I think it first kind of popped up in the Roman church. But... Uh, definitely those that are listed would be sins. So it would be commonly known that coveting actually is a deadly sin. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Oh, Wow, this is really kind of serious. He mentions 
immoral and impure. Immorality, right? Pornea. Pornography. And everybody knows that that's bad. Real bad. And listed right with that is coveting. Because it is idolatry. Idolatry is having anything that would be over God, Christ. Anything that takes the place of Christ is idolatry. And you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, that is serious, isn't it? Let's go to Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. There's porneia again. Impurity. Passion. Yeah, yeah. Evil desire. Yeah. And greed. Which amounts to idolatry. Did you know that greed equals idolatry? What does God think of idolatry? Look in the Old Testament and you'll see that He judges the nations for their idolatrous worship. That He judges Israel for their idolatrous worship. And here we are today, a nation that makes idolaters. It's bad. Ligon Duncan has a pretty good word on this. I'll read a few words of this. Covetousness. Now some people pronounce that as covetousness. <laughs> you ever heard like the, the southern guys pronounce it that way? And I think it was Barb one time. She says, the word is covetousness. Why are they saying covetousness? It's even hard to say. The reason I don't say it is because I can't do it. <laughs> but yet, she says, uh, they're always doing that, you know, and, and it's not to be pronounced that way. She said, do they, do they teach that in seminary to pronounce it that way? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'll try to be careful and not ever to use that that way. But anyway, uh, I just threw that in because... This is getting serious and we need a break just for a moment. Okay, it's subtle, isn't it? Ligon Duncan says, it's often very difficult to detect in ourselves. There are not many people who will walk up to you and say, you know, I'm a covetous person. Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say that? I would tell you, in over the 30 years that I've been a pastor, nobody has ever come up to me and said, I'm covetous. No. Covetousness. <laughs> I've never heard that, but I don't think I ever walked up to anybody and said that either. Um, how about somebody coming up? You know, I constantly am struggling with being covetousness. But it really is more common than we would ever think. And of course, if it's listed in God's top ten, something to think about there, isn't it? God takes it very seriously. The thing is, it's very pervasive in how it comes to us. And we don't think of it as being bad. 
Hard to detect. It's a dangerous sin. It's dangerous. Come on. Not dangerous. What it does, it disguises our real hearts. It disguises it in a way and it makes us almost pretend to be something that we're not. Or to have something that we don't have. Or to wish we had something that is not ours. And it actually can make us hypocrites. He's already said beware of hypocrites. Now he says beware of this coveting, this greed. It's an enemy to grace. God's grace. When our hearts are set on what we want, but we don't have, you know what it does? It takes away our joy. It takes away peace. Because now our mind is driven on getting this thing. could be good. could be very good. But, that's how, I guess you could say, tricky it is. Very subtle. It leads to other kinds of sins. And that's where that passage that we had just read, it, it's really idolatry. It leads us to wanting something, and sometimes that something can overpower our desire to know God. And so therefore, it's a root sin that leads to other kinds of sins. It prevails over the soul. It's idolatry. And we're worshiping stuff now rather than God. Stuff isn't God. Anything that isn't dealing with wanting something through God, we're really committing an idolatrous act. Now, you're going to say, well, you mean is it bad to want something that is can be helpful for the household or even a car or all those things? Or the, You know me, I'm not saying that. But the thing is, is are we being driven by something that really we are not content at the time? And we won't be content until we get it. And that's what where we run into the problem. We're not content with what we have. So Jesus is giving what I say is a very stern warning. Are we on guard against every form of greed? Be on guard about hypocrisy and sometimes that's tough, isn't it? Be on guard about greed. Well, I don't think we're probably that much on guard on greed because our society encourages greed. It's constantly battering things right up to us. Commercials that we get, whether it be on TV or, you know, you can't go on the internet without something popping up. You know, it can be tires, you know, for your car. Different parts, things that you need, you know. And boy, you do that once, the next thing you know, it's right there saying, you know, buy me, buy me. And you go, ooh, that's pretty good. And so, 
We have to be on guard. That's what society does do. It encourages that you shouldn't be satisfied until you get this. That's what it's all about. So here are some questions, five questions that we could ask ourselves. Hopefully we are able to answer these questions correctly. But if it uh, is not, we need to consider... Do my thoughts more often run after material things than after God Himself? Number two, do I ever compromise godly character to pursue some kind of material gain? Number three, do I enjoy material things more than I enjoy knowing about God? Number four, how do I respond when I lose material things? Number five, what would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune when some kind of a Reader's Digest... What is it? Do they still have that sweepstakes you know, going on? Is that still doing that? You, know, you win... You know, I mean, literally, people win millions and millions of dollars. And, of course, most of them, it ruins their lives. You've heard the stories on and on and on. You know, they don't know what to do with it. If we came into that, we could say, well now, very first thought might be this, now I can get that car that I've been needing. Now I can get that house. Hey, now I can go on a world tour and not have to worry about a thing. You know, i got all the money I need and everyone need. I can go out and get a boat. I can get anything that I want. Or would we think, now, first of all, the Lord owns everything and what He has just given me, how can I invest this into the kingdom of God? Would that be the first thought? Or would it be the boat, the car, the house, on and on and on and on, the trip, right? Are those things wrong? No. But what's wrong is God's not first here. What would God have me to do with what He has given me? Right? So a principle is laid down by Jesus right here in our Luke 12. If the sin that underlies the man's request was greed, Jesus, this great teacher, rabbi, has a principle. What He's doing, He's showing the value that this man has is wrong, but it's also very foolish. The principle is this, found in verse 15. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Relatively simple to understand. Jesus is not teaching that life does not consist in possessions. He's saying that even if one could amass a large amount of possessions, it's not going to produce life. Matter of fact, there is no life in that. There is no contentment in no matter what you have. Even though at first you say, well now, I'm independently wealthy. That means I never have to worry about a thing the rest of my life. Wrong. Doesn't produce life. Life does not consist in things. 
So he gives a parable. His principle is laid down right there in front of him. Now the parable is going to lay down right down with that. It really, you know, a parable is spelling out this principle. It's parabole. It's to throw alongside or to lay alongside of this truth that he has. He tells a story. So he lays down a story with the truth that's been given. And so he just gives something that really can be understood just in case this man who asked the question didn't get it yet. And most often they don't. So he teaches in parables that any five-year-old should be able to get. He says an abundance. For not even one has an abundance. Abundance is, is it's more than enough. I mean, it's over and beyond what you need. It's more than sufficient. The word... Uh, well, let's go to 1 Timothy 6.9 first. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. We have that famous verse, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That's just what we've been talking about, isn't it? And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They wander away. It kind of reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress. You have different people representing different things like this. And of course, it's wandering off the path when one gets full of this kind of greed. And it says that they wander from the faith. They, it's ruin. It's destruction. Now, he's saying abundance. What's an abundance? It's something that's sufficient. More than sufficient. That's the idea. Look at John 10. 10. Jesus says in John 10, I'm the door. If you enter in through me, you will be saved. Verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Does that sound like 1 Timothy chapter 6 we just read? I came that they may have life and have it Abundantly. You know, if you're a Christian, you have an abundant life. Christ has supplied us with everything that we need. Everything. Christ is everything. Only Jesus. Nothing else will ever satisfy us. No, you know, we can have our toys. We can have the things that help us and things in life that are important that are almost needs. You know, we have basic needs, obviously. 
whether it be food, water, air, clothing, shelter, you know, that kind of thing. But we're talking about the other thing. Everything else is really overabundant. We have those things. We have more than enough. If you have Christ, you have all that you need. John MacArthur says this, even if you have more than enough, and that's every one of us here, how many here have not only the clothes you're wearing right now, but actually have another set of clothes you can wear? That's more than enough. Wow, we're rich. He says, even if you have more than enough, it still doesn't provide real life. And then he goes on to explain the word for life there is zoe. Eternal life. It's not bios, which we get our word biology, dealing with you know natural life, but zoe, which is eternal life. Real life. True life. All that makes life worth living is the idea of that. The only kind of life that is fulfilling, satisfying, meaningful, purposeful, producing peace and joy and hope and blessing. MacArthur goes on to say, you're never going to get that real life from the material world even if you have more than enough. It's Christ. It's only Jesus. Remember the song that we sang? Only Jesus. That is the heart of the message that Jesus is getting to here. The only problem is, is that we see things out there that other people have. Wouldn't it be nice? And we ponder and ponder on it. Trying to figure out how can I get that? I want it, it's mine. I gotta get it. I'll do anything. <laughs> That's discontent. Contentment is the best way that you can give glory to God. Do you remember John Piper in that statement that he has made, and I've always wanted to live by this? God is most satisfied when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most... Okay, satisfied or glorified. Right? God's glorified. How do we glorify God? By being satisfied with where He has put us in life. That He gives us maybe a nudging or... You know, we have a lot of decisions that we can make. That can be godly, you know. It's not like, well, I heard God's voice, so now I can do this, you know. We don't wait on that. We, we, we take what we know to be true. If it's not against God's word, and it's something that is good, it's something that will honor and glorify Him, then go do it. Do whatever you want, as long as it glorifies Him. Are you content with where you're at, though, too? Are you content with that? It may not be very big, it's not huge, it's not number one. But are you content with where He's placed you? If you are, do you know He's just been glorified? Because 
It's not by accident who you are, where you are, what you are doing. God is involved in all of this. And so, the best way to give God glory is when we're satisfied in Jesus Christ, knowing it's Christ alone. It's only Jesus. He is the one that meets my need. We don't need anything but Christ. He knows exactly what we need at every given moment. Being content is trusting, depending on God for all things. And when you get it, he said, was it wrong to go out and buy anything that did us? No. When you get it, what do you do with it? Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with this. Thank you for this food that I was allowed to go and get at the grocery store and bring it back home. Thank you, Lord, for that. It could be something basic like that or something very expensive. But it's always turning back to God and saying, thank you, you are the reason. May this not ever come in front of you, Lord. This is just something to operate better in this kingdom that we have now. Thank you, Lord. That's the idea. Let's look at Philippians 4, 11 and 12. Something that's very familiar to all of us. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Here we go. The secret of being filled and going hungry. Extremes. Both of having abundance and suffering need. None of us have been that far, have we really? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. There's the context of that verse that was in all the plaques that you know you give to athletes. You know, it's a great verse. You know, and and many athletes will say that. Well, it is true because they recognize where the strength comes from. But do they realize that Paul is saying here, "Hey, I was content whenever I was hungry. I mean, without food for days, being in bondage in prison, for instance, and suffering need, I mean, real need, water, basic stuff, food, shelter. Man. And he says, I was content. I was content when I had everything that I had. And when I didn't have the things that I needed, I was still condemned. The reason is, it's not because I'm some kind of a great person. But I can do all things through Christ. It strengthens me. Christ alone. Only Jesus. Paul tells Timothy about the wealth that God provides, and he does. You'll see a lot of wealthy men in the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, on and on. see a lot of people who aren't wealthy. Paul said to Timothy, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? 
contentment. Being contented with whatever your lot in life is, no matter how bad it can seem, and you're content. What a witness that is to God. You know what? That is the best way to glorify God. Because you know He's in control and I'm just depending on Him. That's what He wants us to do. Now we go to the parable. The story. So He backs up the principle. It's something that can be understood. I thought I was here while I go. Where did I go? Okay. Verse 16, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We get it, don't we? It's laid out very simple. There's the parable. He had this crop. It's super abundant. Boy, what a blessing. I mean, it's absolutely huge. What a year. Maybe years this man has had. And if ever you should thank God, you should thank God for a good crop. That's the idea. That's what this man should have noted here. We know that God controls all the elements. Sure, the man had the seed to plant, put it in there. Sure, he comes along and waters it, takes care of it, weeds it. You say, look what he did. Boy, he... You know, he can go out and have good crops, but if you don't have the rain, if you don't have the sunshine, you don't have a balance, the elements that God has intended for those crops, that man is not going to get anything. It's all on God to produce that. That's the way it is with a wife, too. His profit margins, man, they were just incredibly high. He thought he did it himself. Very prideful man this man is. He was very wise to have a, a retirement in view. Is retirement wrong? No. Not at all. Some people say that it's against God's will for you to retire. And I don't know if, the, if they're talking about retiring from the job or retiring just from life or going down to Florida and you know playing some shuffleboard the rest of your life. That would sound good for a day or two, but... You know, I mean, we're talking, is retirement okay? Yeah, it is. Matter of fact, did you know when the priest retired? 50 years old, according to Levitical law. Uh, dealing with the you know, lifting of things and such. But, but, you know, what about retirement? Well, I think it takes a lot of wisdom. And if you can keep on working, you want to work, and you need the money, it's okay to do that. What if you're tired and, and you, you put in your time at, at that job? Yeah, but retiring never means retiring from the Lord, does it? And he'd say, Lord, what's the next step? You, you had me do this for this amount of years and this for this years. and Okay, what's next, Lord? You know, And he's got something else in mind. 
So retirement is uh, not a thing in black and white. You say, well, you need to be holy. There is no such thing in the Bible about retirement. Maybe there is. Maybe maybe we uh, need to open up on that a little bit more, but what do we do with the time that God has given us? That is the issue. What do we do with the possessions that God has given us? We are called what? Stewards. We're content with those being a steward. We want to further the kingdom. This man does not have that in view. His retirement is one day just to sit back, take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. Have a great time on the shuffleboard, going out to the beach, laying out in the sun every day for the rest of your life. Not doing anything else. The kingdom doesn't matter. I'm retired and now I've got it great. This is what I live my life for. This is what I was aiming for. That's the American way. That you can, That's what I hear at work all the time. How many... How much longer do you have for your retirement? Well, it's going to be 14 years, 11 months, and 6 days, and 9 hours. I mean, they'll get it down to the very hour. I've heard it over and over and over. I hear people, you know, talking to other people, you know, down down the hall, and I hear that quite frequently. When are you going to retire? And it's about, you know, what they can do is just kick up their feet and do nothing. Well, it's kind of funny. They realize... After a few weeks, <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> I will tell you that sometimes you know that that can be, and and that's okay. It's okay to rest and and to, to take a vacation. God needs for He meant for us to have time and enjoy. You know, so I'm not saying retirement is bad in that sense, but I'm saying how can I be of value to the kingdom? You know, I'm just not just because I don't work at that same job anymore. It doesn't make us useless. Matter of fact, we're very important. It starts with prayer, prayer for all the people in the body of Christ, prayer for getting God's will and what He's going to do to, you know, with me next. I was going to do a Bible study on this, and I think I've said about all I know about retirement. That'd be a quick <laughs> Bible study, wouldn't it? We could probably look up a few scripture, and that would take some time. But so he's not. Jesus is not condemning this, but what he's doing is what's this man doing with what he's getting? Did you notice how many times, whenever I read it the first time, the word I occurs in that parable? Six times. Did you notice how many my times comes up also? Five. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. This man is a fool. I say that because Jesus says it. The sin here is not being wealthy. It's not that's not the problem. Can you be wealthy? Yeah. You know? It's laying up treasures for a self-centered, self-serving purpose. If that's what our retirement is about, just for so I can enjoy and have fun the rest of my life, that's wrong, right? You know, it's all about himself. It's not about serving God. It's not about serving others. It wasn't about being rich towards God. That's why Christ gets right at the heart of this man. You remember the rich man? You remember that story? He was a rich young ruler. 
And Jesus hit right at the heart of what His problem was. Well, His plan was was to build bigger barns, tear down the ones He has, not seeking the Lord and the wisdom on this, not being thankful. He says, I have no more storage space. I've done so well with this. I am great. I have really done a great job here. And it's like, forget God, forget others. James says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, is there anything wrong with doing business in another city and making a profit? No, that's fantastic. Great. What was the problem? Well, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears a little while then vanishes away. So you ever seen steam on coffee? And then it's gone. A vapor. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, will live, do this or do that. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, and then if you're going to say the Lord wills, you better be careful to know that you're right with the Lord. The Lord wills. Thank you, Lord. Did this man have any of this in his thinking? Not at all. He had a philosophy of pleasure. Once he built his bigger barns, put all of his crops and goods in them, he says, so you've got it made. Uh-oh. What a statement. All these years I've worked and now I can just take it easy. I'm enjoying the good things of life. Remember that materialist motto, you only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can get. That's what this man, that's what his purpose was. That's really what life was about. To get to that point where you didn't have to do anything anymore. And you know what Jesus calls him? You fool. God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you prepared? Kind of comes out of Ecclesiastes thinking also. Look at Psalm 14, 1-3. What's a fool? We get the word from God of what a fool is. The fool has said in his heart, verses 1-3, through There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The fool says there is no God. You know, this man might have, in this parable, might have even said, well, there's a God. But really, God was not present in his life. He did not give glory to God. He did not thank God. God didn't really mean anything because He did it all. It was Him. And now He's going to sit back and enjoy it. And God says, you fool. You've ignored me. Now, your soul is required of you. That's true foolishness, isn't it? Lays up the treasure for himself. One can be rich in a worldly sense, but without being rich towards God, they have nothing and there is no hope. He laid up treasure for himself. And then Jesus says here, it's what is the materialist worst nightmare they could ever be through? 
that their soul is required and now who's going to own what you have prepared? You worked all your life for this. You're not going to sit back and enjoy it. You're going to be a dead man tonight. And all that stuff you worked for, it's going to go to somebody to take care of it. And they're not going to take care of it. They will own what you have prepared. Ecclesiastes talks about you know leaving an inheritance and such. You worked hard for it, but you can't put it in a trailer and then it goes right on up into heaven. And I'm thankful for that because how ridiculous that would be to have some stuff that we had here on earth when you're talking about a place of glory, living in the very presence of God. You don't need these... Cars? Are you kidding me? Why would you need a car? You can get to wherever you... Well, how did Jesus transport Himself after He resurrected? He was there. <laughs> and then He was there. <laughs> wherever He wanted to go. Glorified bodies, what do they do? I don't know outside of what Jesus did. I mean, none of these things... These, all these things are like little kids' toys that mean nothing. If we have our view on Christ and what the after this life is about. Uh, what's going to happen to the wealth? Well, I'm going to leave it to another fool. Uh, you better take into account your mortality. And that's the idea. Saying, Let's get to the point of the parable, this whole principle. He's mindless because he hasn't considered God. He hasn't done anything to minister to other people. What's the first two commandments or what are the Ten Commandments? The first table and the second table. Love God, love your neighbor. Right? That's the two commandments. That's what it's all about. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow! That's what we do with our lives. He could have spent all of eternity with this fruit of generosity that He'd given if he would have taken that and used it rightly, there are rewards in heaven for what we do with what God has given us. Anyway, if we haven't used what God gives us for His glory and the benefit of others, you haven't dealt with your own mortality and prepared for eternity. How foolish it is to think so much of material goods, to hoard what we have and to leave it all behind. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself. It's not about how much you have. It's what you do with it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this story, this parable that Jesus gave that went right to the heart people who need you. Of course, we as Christians, we need you every moment in every way. And a Christian gives thanks, gives honor, gives glory to God for the least little things that you give us that are so major because it shows who you are and what you do. We just trust in you. Lord, for the ones who would not be trusting in Christ, they have a need. It's Christ. Christ alone. 
Jesus made His message very clear. And may it help us in our walks and where we need to fine-tune where we're at in our walk as far as greed or being in a covetous way. And Lord, we battle that whether we recognize it or not. We said to give us a clean heart when we started out this morning as we read the Psalm 139 passage. Search me and know me. And anything that deals with greed, Lord, please help wipe it out. Give me the point to where I know that I need that to be cleared out so I can glorify You more. Help me to be content in all ways, in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, Amen.